to the Huntley Baptist Church podcast. We hope that this message can be an encouragement to you today. Please feel free to contact us at huntleybaptist at extra.co.nz or visit us at huntleybaptist.com. Morning. So today we're wrapping up a series. A series is called Above and Beyond. And we've heard from Murray and from Jeremy. Um, statements that Jesus made in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, found in the book of Matthew. And uh, today, the focus is going to be on private giving and prayer. So to start off, I just wanted to um, just share a bit about my relationship with money. (laughs) Why people say (laughs) So from quite an early age, I remember viewing money as, um, as this really effective kind of vehicle to get what I wanted. And since getting what I wanted should lead to happiness, um, I held money in quite high regard. Um, when my dreams of being a, a rich rock star failed, I actually tragically I suffered from a rare form of um, talent deficiency, so that was quite hard to work through. <laughs> However, I got through it, and I, uh, I actually secured a job as a QS, which is what I, I was trained for in Melbourne, and the job was quite well paying. So the money started coming in. I lived in a million dollar apartment in Collins Street, which is bang on right in the middle of Melbourne. I think I've said this before. Um, my flatmates and I, we, we ate out every night. Filled the apartment with all expensive gadgets, furniture. We had a big TV. I even had a pool table right in the middle of our lounge. I remember this one night in particular. Um, uh, we'd, we'd been having some drinks. I was showing off the apartment to a girl that I worked with. And after she'd gone home and my flatmate was in bed, uh, my usual thing was to go out onto our balcony, smoke some weed, and look at the city lights. And I remember looking at these penthouse, but we were on the eighth floor, and I remember looking up at the, all these penthouse apartments and thinking, man, once I start earning a bit more money, because I'd been asked if I wanted to invest in the, uh, in the company, I said, once I start earning a bit more money, I'll be able to get an even better apartment than this one. And once I get an even better apartment than this one, I'll have even better looking girls coming around to check it out. And maybe I'll even get some better drugs as well. It's just everything was looking up. And then suddenly I remember getting this, this like revelation. It, was like, it, was, it wasn't like an audible voice. It was like, it was like a, just a voice in my heart saying, you'll never be happy. And... And I just knew it. I just knew it right then that that this pursuit that I'd been going on, this has been 23 or 24 years, this pursuit of material possessions and, and, and this stuff would, would not make me happy because I'd always want bigger and better. Now, this might be super blatantly obvious to some people here, but to me, it was actually quite devastating at the time. It's like my whole life and ambition was built around this. I felt purposeless. It's like the rug had been pulled out from underneath me and my relationship with money was never quite the same. So, if you would be able to turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. I haven't got slides today. If you'd be able to turn with me to Matthew chapter 6, we're going to start at verse 1. And it says, Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, 
do not sound a trumpet before you do, before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory from men. Assuredly, or for sure, I say to you, they have their reward. This is Jesus speaking. But when you do a charitable deed, let not your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your charitable deed may be in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. So I just want to pray quickly. Um, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you reveal clearly what we need to hear and act on it appropriately. In Jesus' name, amen. Now my beloved King James Version uses the term alms, uh, which means giving as an act of virtue, uh, either materially or with an act of service. Other versions use the term righteousness. Um, so would say, take heed that you do not your righteousness before men. Now I just want to talk briefly about Matthew 5, um, because initially there appears like there's some conflict in what Jesus says in Matthew 6 and what he said earlier in Matthew 5. So Matthew 5.16 says, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glory, uh, glorify your Father which is in heaven. So the Greek words, which are super long and crazy hard to pronounce, I tried to learn them. The words that are used in Matthew 5 and 6 for your good works and your practice of good deeds mean the same thing. So which one is it? Are we supposed to actively hide our good works or let them shine? However, there is no contradiction. Since Jesus said in Matthew 5.16, we should do good works, and the Greek word much easier to pronounce, opus, so that then, so we should do our good works so that then people will glorify God by seeing them. Whereas Matthew 6.1 says we should not do good works just to be seen by them. Jesus uses many seemingly contradictory statements in his teaching, um, whereas a simple examination shows a nuance or like a subtle difference. Um, for example, he who is not with me is against me, Luke eleven twenty three, and in Luke eleven nine fifty he says, he who is not against us is for us. So at first glance they seem to overlap and contradict before you realize what is being said in each case. So here, even if Jesus didn't use different wording, we would still know that he meant both instances. Show your works to glorify God by letting men see them, but don't show them just to be seen by men. So it's, it's the same kind of deed, but Matthew 5.16 is about the impact, God receiving the glory. Matthew 6.1 is about the motivation. And that's what I want to focus on today, the motivation. So we're going to look at two examples, and the first kind of question that I'm asking myself and everyone here is, what was the traditional Jewish motivation to do acts of righteousness? So a good place to start is that it was commanded in God's law. <laughs> One example is Deuteronomy 14, 28 and 29, and it says this, At the end of three years thou shalt bring forth all the tithe of thine increase the same year and lay it up within thy gates. And the Levite, because he had no part or inheritance with thee, and the stranger and the fatherless and the widow which are within thy gates, shall come and shall eat and be satisfied, that the Lord thy God may bless thee in all the works of thy hand which thou doest. 
So the first tithe was taken annually, and that was to support the Levites. They were the priests. They didn't own any land. Um, and every third year, a special tithe was taken. And that had a distinct purpose. That was for supporting orphans, widows, and strangers. So it kind of baked into God's law as, as the special provision um, to take care of the most vulnerable citizens. But bear in mind, this wasn't a volunteer thing. This was an obligation, duty. But Jesus himself says that he didn't come to replace any of the old laws. The Old Testament and the New Testament combined to provide the complete story of our salvation. But Jesus' teachings would have seemed pretty radical to the listening disciples. But he wasn't reinventing the scripture wheel. See, in Matthew 6, Jesus advises those listening not to be hypocrites, which comes from the Greek word hypocrites. I see how they got that. That link, um, meaning actor or mask wearer. Those doing their deeds for the intention of others were putting on a performance and were missing so much of the complete picture. But it must have been hard for them to wrap their heads around what Jesus was saying. They were used to religion. And all the rules they had learned to follow their entire lives in order to become, or, or in order to be counted worthy of God. Now there's security in rules and religion. They could have had some confidence in their own righteousness. After all, hadn't God promised to bless them if they simply obeyed? Now I must admit I can relate to this kind of attitude. It's like a clear transaction. If I do this, I get this. Black and white. I've never been particularly detail orientated, so who cares how I get it done as long as it gets done. Right, that's. But if I scratch a little deeper, I find that I have been guilty of using spiritual tasks in a very similar way to how I used money as a vehicle for my own happiness. Help clean up after church, feel good, maybe get a thanks from Murray and Jenny, prepare a sermon, maybe get a positive comment from Lynn or Ivy. Now please hear me right, I'm not saying encouragements are a bad thing. I'm just saying if that's what you're running on, if that's what's getting you through, then you need to review your motivations. Paul lays it pretty straight. He says in Galatians 1.10 that if he was still trying to please man, he would not be a servant of Christ. And by reading that, you get the impression that at one point in his life, probably when he was a Pharisee, he did what he did to please man. Now yesterday, as it's already been said, was a community serve day. I really enjoyed it. And I've asked permission from Bronwyn to, to share something that we talked about after it. She said to me, um, I really didn't feel like coming today. And, and as we were doing it, I just really wasn't that enthusiastic. Now, I like people who are real. <laughs> and uh, I thought that her open and honest attitude was actually quite refreshing. Later on, I was pondering, why did Bron Bronwyn decide to come? And I started this kind of checklist in my head. I don't think it was for the glory. Uh, no one was lining up to give us medals after we finished. And I'm pretty sure it didn't make the evening news. <laughs> Although we did receive a warm thanks. It wasn't for her own enjoyment. She fully acknowledged that. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure it wasn't to get a lesson from Andy on how to properly roll up an extension cord. As enjoyable as that must have been. <laughs> <laughs> Only Bronwyn and God will really know. 
But I think she did it because she knew it was the right thing to do. She knew the intention of the day was to serve in the hope of bringing God glory and expand his kingdom, and that it wasn't about her or what she wanted. I think it was the Holy Spirit prompting and Bronwyn listening. And if that truly was the case, then I think Bronwyn's motivations were spot on, despite her initial hesitations. So our second example of the importance of motivation is highlighted in the story of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5. You probably know it well. So at the end of Acts 4, we're told about a man, Barnabas. He sells some land, he brings the money, and he gives it to the apostles. He obviously didn't keep it secret because his name's plainly listed as a donator, and he must have received a fair amount of praise and thanks from the other believers because even though his name was actually Joseph, the apostles rename him Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. So his donation was out in the open. It was well received. And Mr. Ananias, moved by what he'd seen, decides along with his wife to do the same thing. The only difference is their actions are motivated by a completely different spirit than that of Barnabas. If Barnabas was moved by the Holy Spirit to do what he did, and for that he won much praise and favor from God and men, Ananias and Sapphira had done it in the opposite spirit. They lied to the apostles and said that they had donated the wholesale of the land when in fact they kept some back for themselves. When the truth comes out, they're promptly struck down dead. Serious business, eh? Hypocrisy is a destructive force within the community of God's people. If Satan cannot destroy the church from without, he will attempt to destroy it from within. The theologian John Stott writes that Ananias and Sapphira were not so much misers, or people who hoard wealth, as they were thieves. They wanted the credit and the prestige for a sacrificial generosity without the inconvenience of it. So in order to gain a reputation of which they had no right, they told a brazen lie. Their motive in giving was not to relieve the poor, but to fatten their own ego. So, the Heidelberg Catechism, I think I said that right, it's like this biblical study document from the Protestant Reformation that had all these commentaries from these people in it, and it kind of, it would ask itself questions and then seek to answer it. And one of the questions was, what's what's considered a, a good work? And this is how they answered it. They said it's three criteria. Firstly, it arises out of true faith. Secondly, it conforms to God's law. And third, it is done for his glory. So only under the influence of the Holy Spirit would anybody meet that criteria. Whereas Ananias and Sapphira fail, as especially in the third criteria. Their action was not done for the glory of God, but for the glory of themselves. So... There's heaps of different reasons that we do things, eh? And that's often a hard thing to figure out, uh, even for the person doing them. Why do we do anything that we do? The issue is we're so naturally self-centered that even if we're not doing it for others, we'll often just do it for ourselves because it makes us feel good. Um, if someone were to say to us, I do it because I just love the look that I get from people when I help them out, we don't hear anything wrong with that statement. That's how used to those kind of statements we are. 
But if we're helping the poor because it gives us a good feeling inside, then we've just revealed our motivation for doing so, to feel good. And is feeling good a problem? Well, no. But in this circumstance, what are we feeling good about exactly? Our own righteousness? In Matthew 6, 1, some versions read, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. We all know how far our own righteousness gets us. We need the righteousness of Jesus and him working in us and through us to do anything worthwhile. So why did Jesus do what he did? What was his motivation? John 8, 28 and 29 gives us some insight. Then said Jesus unto them, when ye have lifted up the Son of Man, so when he's going to get crucified, then you shall, then shall ye know that I am he, and that I do nothing of myself. But as my Father taught me, I speak these things, and he that sent me is with me. The Father hath not left me alone, for I do always those things that please him. Did you catch that? All he does is to please God the Father doesn't say anything about pleasing Jesus or pleasing the people around Jesus. It talks about pleasing the Father. Now, my dad has many <laughs> admirable traits, but I always cringed, and still do, when I realized that I have no choice but to ask to borrow some of his tools or equipment or his precious Hilux. It's a three-stage affair. First off, flat denial. <laughs> He's just like, no, no, it's not possible. <laughs> Sorry, I'm, I'm living, it was literally a couple of weeks ago I think I went through this. Now, some persistence can get you through this stage, but you've got to maintain a complete air of humility and desperation. That's important. Never, <laughs> it's, that's the key. Then, the second stage, interrogation. Did you really need this? Um, what exactly do you need it for? How long are you going to be using it for? And if possible, if at all possible, can you get it from someone else? <laughs> You've got to be well prepared and have your story straight for this stage. Don't wing it. You've got to have your story right. The third and final stage, reluctant acceptance. But not before he bargained in a lawn mowing or some weeding in the deal. He's, he's always hustling. <laughs> Now, I don't blame my dad at all. Um, I didn't exactly have the greatest track record, especially with cars. And um, apparently his dad was exactly the same with him. But I come to realize that I've expected the same kind of runaround from God the Father. That my needs or requests were just another painful administration task for him. Something he doesn't really enjoy, and if, if at all possible, he would find a way to say no. If Jesus' motivation was to please God the Father, then what is God the Father's motivation? I would like you to picture a child, a boy or a girl, it doesn't really matter, young, maybe four or five. Everything started off good, but their mother dies early from heart complications. Their dad tried his best in the beginning, but he's not really around so much anymore. They get passed around family members, aunties, uncles, and nanas. But the child is angry and rebellious, and it's all too much for them. The child ends up in state care. 
It's a harsh place. They learn to steal. There's never enough. They learn to lie. Better someone else gets punished than them. And they learn to fight. Better someone else. Oh, they need to protect what's theirs and take what they need. As they grow older, they nurture these skills and add a few more to the list. They learn how to tell people what they need to hear to get what they want. A life of gangs, drugs and crime proceeds. Then it all catches up with them. They're arrested and due to appear before a judge. They are appointed a lawyer who tells them that this judge is powerful, wise and righteous. He will not be intimidated and he will not be bribed. So the court date comes. Their so-called friends don't show up. They sit alone next to their lawyer. This judge sits down, he reviews all the evidence. He, he carefully checks records. He reads reports. He listens to witnesses. Finally, he speaks. I've reviewed the evidence and I have no doubt in my mind that you've done all these horrible things that you're accused of. How do you plead? Faced with all this overwhelming evidence, the now young adult sobs. What could they possibly say otherwise? Guilty, they whisper. The judge sits silence for what seems like an eternity and then leans forward. If you are willing, he says, this day I will pay all your fines and I will replace all that you've stolen and damaged. My son has never been in trouble with the police, but he has offered to carry out all your community service hours and serve any required jail time. The record will show that he was punished for these crimes. I will seal your file and no one need ever know about all that you have done. What do you think that child would say or even think as they looked up at this judge? How does someone even process an offer as good as that? Could it be a trick? But this judge isn't finished. He stands up and says, if you're willing still, this day, I will legally adopt you. You will live in my house, you will eat at my table, and all the security and privileges and opportunities that come with my power and influence will be yours. This day and every day. Notice the judge's invitation. If you are willing. It's not a command. It's an offer. A gift can be accepted or rejected. But who in their right mind would reject a gift like that? Now, that story is just a pale comparison of the one found in this book. This book details a far greater list of crimes and a far superior offer of mercy. Not just for the chosen few, but for us all. Now, I'm ashamed to say I've rejected this offer in the past. I say things like, I'm not worthy of such a gift. It should go to someone else. Or, if I embraced it, I'd just screw it up anyway. And they'd regret giving it to me. There's a saying I heard recently. You can give without loving, but you can't love without giving. God the Father so loved the world 
that he gave his only begotten Son. And whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Brothers and sisters, we must trust fully in this gift we've been given and in the good intentions and motivations of our Heavenly Father if we are to ever truly give to others. By all means, give wisely. Seek counsel from the Holy Spirit. I can't stress that enough. But I don't think the church currently has a problem with being overgenerous. I think it's quite the opposite. So let me leave you with two questions. In that story of the child and the judge, do you think they would ever worry about asking their new father for anything? And the second question is, as they lived out the rest of their new life, do you think they would be generous? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for all you've given us. All the provision, Lord. Your Holy Spirit. But most of all, your precious Son, Jesus. Help us, give, help us, Lord, to give out of what we have been given. Heavenly Father, for all those out there right now that might be thinking, I have nothing of value to give, either in material possessions or in service, may they harness the amazing gift of prayer and lift up their families, friends, and your church daily for your glory, Lord, and for the expansion of your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Huntley Baptist Church.